Amen. Have a seat. I got so excited with instructions, we forgot to read. So we're going to start with going to start with Deuteronomy 17. Tony didn't miss his cue. I missed the cue, and that's why they were late walking up. So Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book the copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Thus says the word of the Lord. All right, take the notes, take your Bible. We're gonna go back and forth between Kings and Chronicles tonight so you can sort of find your spot in 1 Kings and then in 2 Chronicles. As we talk about the kings of Israel and Judah, I think it's important to understand the national history of the people of Israel. And so each week when we start, me or Corey, we're just going to review some basic things about the leadership past, the foundational leadership structure of Israel as a nation. And so on your notes and up on the screen, I'll put up a few names for you to consider. Moses is what you would call the first true leader of the nation of Israel. And Moses is the most remarkable, most complex leader because of all the different roles that he filled and all the different uh, positions that he played as leader of the nation of Israel. Uh, Moses was part prophet, part legislator, part Supreme Court, part general. When you look at his life, he does all of those things. He is never called a king So I'm not going to say that Moses was the first king of Israel. He's not called a king, but he certainly acts like a king. He's the man calling the shots. He's the man at the top of the the food chain. So Moses was first. Then comes Joshua. Joshua was a good guy. He was a godly man. He learned from Moses. He was the general that led the people into the promised land that conquered the nations and sent Israel out to its inheritance. So you move from Moses to Joshua into a period of the judges and that's where the train goes off the track and the wheels come off the bus and whatever metaphor you want to plug in, everything goes completely haywire during the period of the judges. At their best, they were flawed leaders. At their very best, they were deeply flawed leaders. None of the judges ruled over all of the tribes of Israel at one time. If we were to go back and drop in and look at them and study them, we would describe them more as tribal warlords. 
They're just strong men, powerful men who led armies, who raised up militias and fought off the bad guys, the Philistines or whoever was oppressing Israel at that time and gave Israel some relief from the oppression that they were experiencing. The last of the judges was a man named Samuel. Samuel was different than all the other judges. He was a godly man. He was a prophet, and he led Israel well. And Samuel leads us right into what I would just call the triad of Saul, David, Solomon. Okay, these are the kings who ruled over the united kingdom of Israel, all the tribes under one king. Saul, a miserable failure. Absolutely miserable. David starts out great, falls flat on his face. By God's grace, he gets up, and then he kind of stumbles across the finish line, and it's not the greatest end to a story. We talked about David not all that long ago. Then you have Solomon. He starts gangbusters. I mean, he comes out of the gate strong, fast, following the Lord, and then something happens in his life, which we're going to talk about tonight, and he completely gets derailed from the race that he's running. That brings you to, functionally, a civil war. After the death of Solomon, Israel just devolves into basically a civil war, and the kingdom is divided. You have Israel in the north, and you have Judah in the south. We're going to talk about tonight and next week the first two kings, Rehoboam tonight, the first king of Judah, and next week, Jeroboam, the first king of Israel. When you trace the line of the kings of Israel in the north, they are every last one of them wicked. They are terrible, terrible, idolatrous, immoral, nasty people. They're bad, bad kings. If you look at the line of Judah, it's an up and down sort of story. There's some good ones, there's some bad ones. It's really hard to predict when a good one's gonna come along or when a bad one's gonna come along, but we're gonna talk about some of the major kings. We're not gonna talk about all of them in this study. We're gonna talk about the ones that the Bible devotes a significant amount of attention to. Tonight, we're gonna talk about Rehoboam. Sometimes in life, people end up being remembered for the dumbest thing that they ever did. That's really unfortunate. You would not want that to happen to you. If you just look back on your life, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand and say to everyone, this is the dumbest thing I ever did or the most foolish thing I ever did. But you just think about that thing for a moment and you imagine, what would it be like if everyone who knew me, when they heard my name or they saw my face, they immediately thought about the dumbest thing that I ever did. That's a tough, that's a tough thing to experience. Let me give you a real world example of this. A basketball player by the name of Chris Weber. Chris Weber grew up in Detroit. He was an absolute basketball phenom, an unbelievable basketball player. His high school basketball team won three consecutive state championships. As a senior, he averaged 29.4 points a game. He was awarded Mr. Basketball in the state of Michigan. He was the National High School Player of the Year in basketball, and he was the MVP of the McDonald's High School All-American game. He was an amazing high school basketball player, absolutely a once-in-a-lifetime talent. He was recruited by schools all over the United States, and he decided to stay in his home state of Michigan. He went to the University of Michigan. At the University of Michigan, he became part of something that we look back on and we call the Fab Five. There was five freshmen at the University of Michigan. They didn't start the season all as starters, but as the season went on, 
that became the starting lineup. These five freshmen, and the best of them, the leader of them, was Chris Weber. They were a remarkable basketball team. Their freshman year, the Fab Five, made it all the way to the NCAA tournament, all the way through the NCAA tournament, all the way to the championship game, and they played mighty, mighty Duke. And everyone was excited about the game, and the freshmen got a little bit jittery, and they just got whooped by the Blue Devils. I think it was 71 to 51. It really wasn't a close basketball game. It was a little bit disappointing, but it was the first time that five freshmen had started at a major program like that and had made it that far in college basketball. They all came back the second year. That wouldn't happen today. They would go pro. They'd get paid. But they all came back for their sophomore year. They had a fantastic sophomore campaign. They made it all the way to the NCAA tournament, all the way to the championship game. Duke was knocked out. And this year they're playing North Carolina, Michigan versus North Carolina. With 11 seconds left in the game, North Carolina is up 73 to 71. North Carolina is up two points. And Michigan has the ball. 11 seconds left. So they throw the ball in to their best player, Chris Weber. The first thing he does is not dribble the ball. He just starts running. He travels. He commits a travel in the backcourt. And the referees don't call it. And you can go back and watch the clip on YouTube. The announcer says, oh, he traveled. And they didn't call it. And so he starts dribbling, and he runs up the court, and you think, you are the luckiest guy ever. I can't believe you got away with that. But then he ran up the court. He dribbled to the death corner, which you're never supposed to do even in third-grade basketball. But he dribbled right to the death corner where they trap you in the corner, and he panicked, and he looked at the ref, and he called a timeout. And they blew the whistle, and they gave him a timeout. But then the refs looked at each other and said, you're actually out of timeouts. That's a technical foul, not a timeout, and North Carolina went on to win the game. That's the thing that Chris Weber is remembered for, that spot right there. Looking over his shoulder like a deer in the headlights, basketball in his front legs, trying to stick his deer paws up there and call a timeout when he doesn't have a timeout. The best player in the country, a basketball phenom. This is a man who went on to play in the NBA and had a remarkable NBA career. He was a great NBA player. When he retired from the NBA, he has had a very successful broadcasting career. I think he's a terrible broadcaster, but they keep putting him on games, and when he's on a game that I'm watching, I just mute it and I don't listen to him. But he's made a lot of money as a broadcaster. Nobody remembers any of that stuff about Chris Weber. Nobody cares that he scored 29.4 points a game his senior year in high school. What everyone remembers is the worst mistake, the most foolish mistake, the dumbest thing that he ever did, and that's trying to call timeout when he didn't have one. For those who care, his dad made it worse, and his dad got a vanity license plate after this event that said, timeout. That's tough. Your own dad. Time out. Rehoboam never played a game of basketball in his life. But he is remembered mostly for the dumbest thing that he ever did. We're going to talk about his life in whole, and we're going to give attention to the dumbest thing, the most foolish thing that he ever did. And we're going to jump in. 
Grab your notes. Have your copy of the scriptures. We're going to read a lot of these passages tonight as we work through Rehoboam in the Bible. We'll start with this. Rehoboam's mother, she's mentioned several times in the Old Testament. Her name was Nama the Ammonite. And in case you're trying to piece it all together, the Ammonites were not one of the 12 tribes. You're thinking Judah, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Dan, Zebulun, Naphtali. You're going through the list and you're saying, I I don't remember Ammon. It's because they were a Canaanite people. They lived in the land when Joshua brought the people into the promised land. They were people that Israel conquered. His, His mom was name of the Ammonite, one of Solomon's many wives who turned Solomon's heart from the Lord. If you'll open your Bible to 1 Kings 11, we'll read this quickly. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4 says, When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. We're going to talk about her Sunday, by the way. Also went after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. So there's two Ammonite gods mentioned in Solomon's pantheon. There's Milcom, and then there's Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So he marries all these women. They pressure him, manipulate him, talk to him. He has absolutely no backbone. He does whatever they tell him to do. He puts up all these altars and places of worship for these foreign gods. And before long, he's not just put them up for his wives, but he's going there with his wives. And he's participating in all of this idolatry. One of his wives was named Nama the Ammonite. We don't know for certain that she was the one that talked him into putting up these shrines for the Ammonite gods, but it makes a little bit of sense. It's also interesting to note that Rehoboam was only half Jewish. His father, Solomon, his mother, an Ammonite. We read the passage in Deuteronomy that says, when you get in there and you want to pick a king, you can have a king. But you take a king from among your own brothers, not one of the foreigners. And Rehoboam sort of makes you uneasy from the get-go because it's sort of like, well, what is he? Is he a Hebrew or is he an Ammonite? And it's not entirely clear uh, what he is, but as the story goes on, it becomes completely clear that he is all pagan. Next, Rehoboam took the throne. Here's some numbers for you at the age of 41. He reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem. He died at the age of 58. I'll let you look at 1 Kings 14 and 2 Chronicles 12 for those details. 41 years old when he took the throne. It is interesting that when he took the throne, the capital of Israel, remember it splits during his lifetime, the capital was in Jerusalem. And you would think that the new king would be inaugurated in Jerusalem. He wasn't. He left Jerusalem. He went north to a city called Shechem, and he tried to hold his inauguration basically out in the middle of nowhere up in northern Israel. And it's a strange thing. It would be like me saying to you in a couple of years, hey, we have a, a new president being inaugurated, and they're going to hold the inauguration ceremony in Montana. You would say, what? 
You do that in Washington. We've always done it in Washington. That's the capital. That's where you do that sort of stuff. But he leaves Jerusalem and he goes up north, and it seems to be some sort of attempt to curry favor or to win favor with the northern tribes, and it absolutely does not work. Like his father Solomon, Rehoboam married multiple women. He had 18 wives, 60 concubines, 28 sons, and 60 daughters. You know Solomon had way more than that. So when you've, you've come after Solomon, this seems fairly reasonable when you're used to Solomon's standards. But you and I look at those numbers and you realize it's absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely preposterous. And it's one of those places in the Bible where some people will look at these verses and say, well, look, the Bible says this is okay. These guys did it. No. You've taken a hermeneutic class on Wednesday night, how to interpret the Bible. And you know, no, 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 this is, this is historical narrative. And it's just telling you the facts. It's not telling you it's a good thing that he had that many wives and concubines. It's just telling you. That's what happened. And as you read the story, you put all the clues together and you say, this was a complete train wreck. I mean, you can only imagine 18 wives, 60 concubines, all these kids. Uh, absolutely, absolutely crazy. And we read Deuteronomy 17, Right? One of the things that God said to his people in Deuteronomy 17 is when you come into the land and you want to have a king like all the other nations, you can put a king in place. He told them way back in Moses' day, I'm going to let you have a king, but I get to pick him, and I get to tell him how to act and how to live. And one of the things we read in Deuteronomy 17 is your king is not going to accumulate a bunch of wives. I don't want that for my kings. It's not going to work for the king or for the nation. Solomon didn't listen. Rehoboam didn't listen either. Rehoboam is mostly remembered for his first decision as king. He comes right out of the gate and he trips. Look at 1 Kings chapter 12. This will be the longest section of scripture we read. 1 Kings 12 beginning in verse 1 and we're going to go to verse 15. It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem. Went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, we'll talk about Jeroboam next week. Jeroboam was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. They're talking about Solomon. Now therefore, lighten the heart the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today, and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Jesus talked about servant leadership, right? Jesus didn't invent that. There's people all the way back in the Old Testament that understand the principle of servant leadership. Rehoboam, this is what you do. You serve the people, and they will serve you. It'll be a beautiful thing. That's their advice. But, verse 8, he, Rehoboam, abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him, and he took counsel with the young men. Apparently, they were middle schoolers. They had grown up with him, 
and stood before him, and he said to them, what do you advise me that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father has put on us? And the young men, this is where I say they sound like middle schoolers, the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Real tough guy talk. Verse 12, Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonot, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And if you keep reading in the very next paragraph, he's spoken harshly to them, and they say they want nothing to do with him. They're going to rebel against Rehoboam, and they're going to end up following Jeroboam, and Rehoboam doesn't like it. He still won't turn course. He still won't admit that he's wrong. So he sends one of his servants up to the north to organize this labor force, and he probably tells him, don't forget the line about the pinky and the thigh when you go up there, and the scorpions. Don't forget to tell him about the scorpions. We're going to whip them with scorpions. And he sends this guy up there, and the guy gets up there to get the, the labor force together, and they stone him on the spot. They just kill him immediately. They say, we're not going to have anything to do with this nonsense. And Rehoboam ends up essentially running for his life. In the end, if you read 1 Kings 12 and 2 Chronicles 11, you'll read that a couple of the tribes stay loyal to Rehoboam. One of these passages says Judah only stays with Rehoboam. And the other passage, which we're going to read in a minute, is 2 Chronicles 11, talks about the Levites rallying to Rehoboam. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. So you've got Judah and you've got the Levites. And I would also just add to that, you also have Simeon. The tribe of Simeon had their inheritance completely inside. They were landlocked inside the tribe of Judah. So when Judah defected with Rehoboam or stayed with Rehoboam, Simeon sort of was just folded into that. And you also had the Benjamites if you go back to the book of Judges, there was another civil war in the book of Judges. The Benjamites were almost completely wiped out. They lived just on the north side of Jerusalem, just north of Judah, and there's just not many of them at this point in history, and they sort of get folded in with Judah as well. So when the text says Judah alone stays with him, it's talking about Judah, and the Benjamites sort of get lumped in with that, and the tribe of uh, Simeon gets lumped in with that, and then the Levites come down as well, and that's who Rehoboam ends up ruling over. Now, let's talk about what happened with three truths. I'm going to give you three truths. They're all true. Truth number one, Rehoboam made a foolish decision. And this is what he's remembered for. In fact, most of your Bibles right above 1 Kings 12.1 probably have a little topical heading that says Rehoboam's folly. 
That's the thing we remember him for. Listening to the 41-year-old middle school boys that grew up with him say, go brag about how strong your pinky is and go threaten them with scorpions instead of whips. And he listens to them instead of the wise old men and everything goes completely haywire. It was a foolish decision on his part and he was responsible for his folly. Here's another truth. The Lord was sovereign over all of it. And we read that in verse 15. It says, the king did not listen to the people for, it's about to explain why the king did not listen to the people. Well, partly it's because he's a fool. We, we know that. The text is clear about that. But here's another reason. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. In other words, the Lord is up there working his purposes out even through foolish kings. God can do that. He can work out his plans and his purposes and his agenda through anybody that he wants to work it out through, including somebody as dumb and foolish as Rehoboam bragging about their pinky and scorpions. The Lord is sovereign over all of that. And it's also true that Jeroboam led a rebellion in Israel. So we're not going to let Jeroboam off the hook, and we're going to come back to him next week. But if you look at chapter 12, verse 19, it clearly says Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Meaning, yes, Rehoboam was foolish, but Jeroboam still shouldn't have split off with all those people. It was an act of rebellion. It was an act of treason. All of those things are true at the same time. You're going to find yourselves in situations in life where people do foolish things and people do wicked things. And in the midst of that, you're often tempted to question whether or not God is in control. What in the world is going on in this moment? Now look, people are responsible for their rebellion. And people are responsible for their folly. They own it. And they will give account for it. But in the grand scheme of things, God is sovereign over all of it. And your view of God has to be big enough to encapsulate 1 Kings 12 verse 15. Okay, back to Rehoboam. The first three years of his reign were marked by obedience Now we want to be fair to him. There was three years of obedience, but the final 14 years of Rehoboam's reign were marked by wickedness. And I would direct your attention to 2 Chronicles chapter 11. We mentioned the Levites earlier. Let's come back to the Levites. 2 Chronicles 11, verse 13. It says, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel. You remember that when the tribes came in, they all got a piece of land except the Levites. The Levites got cities all the way through the land and all the different tribes. It was sort of like God seasoning the nation. I'm gonna spread these priestly people, these Levitical priests all the way through the nation. They're not gonna lump up in one spot, but we're gonna spread them out through all of Israel. So they present themselves to him in all the places where they live. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord, and he appointed his own priest for the high places and the goat idols and the calves that he had made. We'll talk about all that next week. Those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord, God of Israel, came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah. And for three years, they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure, for they walked three years in the way of David and Solomon. It's a pretty cool piece of the story. 
Jeroboam kicks all the Levites out of his territory. He says, you're no longer my priest. I'm going to establish my own priesthood. And they have nowhere else to go. They're all kicked out of their land. And so they say, well, let's go to Judah. So all the priests that were supposed to sort of leaven the entire nation or season the entire nation, they all end up in Jerusalem. So you get all of these missionaries, all of these pastors, all of these Sunday school teachers, all of these people who want to seek the Lord and sacrifice to the Lord, not to all the other idols. They end up there, and it kind of lifts the nation for a while. It has a, a godly influence. There's a lot of light, spiritual truth being talked about in the city. So there's this three-year window of obedience. The back end is marked by disobedience. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 14, starting in verse 21, you'll read this. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every hill, every high hill and under every green tree. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So he had three years that were pretty good. And then eventually the influence of Rehoboam was too much and the nation sort of spiraled into wickedness. Rehoboam's entire reign was marked by war and conflict. And I'll let you read these verses on your own. It wasn't necessarily line up the armies and let's just kill each other till we're all dead, but it was a skirmish here and a battle there and a conspiracy here and guerrilla warfare there and uh, different matters of aggression and boundaries and territories and all the rest. It was just constant conflict between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And it wasn't just between Judah and their cousins, their brothers up in the north. It was even between Judah and Egypt. There's a pharaoh from Egypt named Shishak who marches against Rehoboam and Judah. And he's ready to burn the whole place down. And Rehoboam basically gives him all his money to just go away. Just take all the money. Like the bully taking the money from the the skinniest kid in the lunch line. Just take it all and leave me alone. Don't punch me in the face. And he just totally buys him off. And they plunder Judah. So that's his life. What do you do with all that? Let me give you a few thoughts of application. Number one, sin always has consequences. It always has consequences. You learn from the stories of Moses and the stories of Samuel and the stories of David that God is gracious and he's merciful and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and he's eager to forgive his people. He's eager to restore the joy of their salvation. David experienced that in a remarkable way. But one of the things you see in Rehoboam's life, and really I think Corey and I could put this point on the outline every week. Spoiler alert, it's on the outline next week for sure. Sin always has consequences. It doesn't mean that God can't or won't forgive. It's just part of the moral fabric of the universe. It's how God has created life on this earth to work. Sin has consequences. You've heard the saying, you can pick your sin, but you don't get to pick the consequences of your sin. Sometimes those consequences fall on you. Sometimes those consequences fall on those closest to you, your family. 
Sometimes those consequences fall on your church family. Sometimes those consequences fall on your nation, depending on the position that you hold and the the amount of leadership that's been entrusted to you. But sin always has consequences. Think about Solomon. Solomon. Solomon read Deuteronomy 17. He knew that as king, he was not supposed to accumulate a bunch of wives. And he accumulated hundreds of them. Thousands of concubines. Just women, women, women. And those women brought their idols. And those idols became Solomon's idols. And Solomon's idols and Naamah's idols became Rehoboam's idols. We read about Milcom and Molech. This is a statue of Milcom on the left, Ammonite god. A lot of people in this area viewed Milcom as the high god. And they sort of viewed him as the the one high supreme deity. And they sort of had this idea that he goes by different names in different places. And so it was easy to sort of transport this into Judah, into the life of Israel, because they said, well, we have a high god. We call him Yahweh. What do you call yours? Milcom? Well, it's probably the same guy. You have a high God, we have a high God. It's probably just interchangeable. It's not at all interchangeable. The Lord is outraged that they would worship this God. Molech is up there. Molech's on the right. That's one of the safer pictures of Molech uh, that you can show. He was a Canaanite deity who required child sacrifice. So they set his altar up outside of the gates of Jerusalem. Think about that, the capital city of Judah, city of David. Right outside the gates, they've got a high place, an altar to Molech. And there they offer child sacrifices, and some of the future kings will do this. These women that Solomon married brought these idols in. Solomon accepted them. Rehoboam grew up with them, and that's what he knew. And that's the way that he led the people. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 12. This chapter is instructive in the way that it starts and the way that it ends. Second Chronicles 12.1 says, When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Once he was established, remember all these priests, the Levites had come and they'd strengthened the nation. But once he was established and once he was firmly entrenched as king, once he had what he felt like was a firm grip on the throne, He abandons the law of God. Look what you read down in verse 14. It says, he did evil for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. And Rehoboam very well may have been one of those people that said, you know, I'm I'm still, we all worship the same God. You might call him Yahweh or you might call him Milcom, but I'm seeking God. I'm seeking a deity and that's not God's take on it at all. God says, no, actually, you're not seeking the Lord. His name is the Lord. It's not Milcom. You've gone after another God entirely. And these two verses are interesting. Verse 14 says he's not seeking the Lord. Verse 1 says he abandoned the law of the Lord. And when I read those two verses together this week, it made me think of one of our elders, Don Sauls. I bet a hundred times I've heard Don Sauls say, you cannot separate God from his word. You cannot separate God from his word. It sounds like something you teach to preschoolers. Like, okay, great. Okay. 
Think about it. You cannot separate God from his word. You cannot seek the Lord if you've abandoned the law of the Lord. You can't know the one true God if you refuse to listen to the revealed word of God in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. You can't separate God from his word. Rehoboam was a very spiritual guy. He was all about worship. He loved to worship. He was all about offering sacrifices. But in turning from the law of God, he turned from God himself. You cannot separate God from his word. Sin always has consequences. Next, we should be quick to listen. We should be quick to listen. James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Rehoboam got all of that flipped on its head. I mean, he listened, kind of, not really, and really wanted to do, what he wanted to do was flex his muscles and show his power and brag about his pinky and his scorpions. That's what he really wanted to do. And he was immediately outraged that these people would come and ask him to lighten their load. He was outraged that the old men would say to the king, you should serve the people. And you just know that in his heart, he thought, why would I do that? I'm the king. That's not what kings do. People serve the king. Kings don't serve the people. He had a completely upside down view of leadership and he was not quick to listen. Contrast that with the leaders that we started off talking about, the leaders of Israel, Moses. There's a time in Moses' life when his father-in-law came and said, Moses, you're being an idiot. You can't judge all these people. You need to change the way you're doing this. What did Moses do? He listened and he changed and he learned. Think about Joshua. Joshua spent years fighting battles and learning from Moses. He spent more time as the vice president than he did as the president. More time as the understudy than he did as the lead in the play. He listened, and he learned. What about Samuel? Poor Samuel, he didn't have anybody godly to listen to, but he still listened to Eli. He sort of took it with a grain of salt, but he listened to Eli, and he listened to the Lord when the Lord spoke to him. He was quick to listen. What about David? I mean, David did some foolish things in his life, but when Nathan came and rebuked him, what did he do? He listened. With Jonathan, his best friend, Jonathan told David what to do at different points in time. David, the future anointed king, and he listened to somebody else. All of these leaders listened to other people. They didn't have all the answers. They didn't know all the answers. They were willing to listen. Rehoboam won't listen. He's only listening for what he wants to hear. And he's looking for an opportunity to show everybody how tough he is. I think this is a big problem in our society. People don't want to listen. Social media takes that fire and pours gas on it. Because if you don't want to listen, you can snooze them for a month, unfollow them, scroll right past them, whatever. But you get to talk. That's what we like to do on social media. I'm here to express my views. No one's listening to me. I'm gonna, I got something to say. Y'all are going to listen to it. No, we're not. We all have you muted. (laughs) Nobody wants to listen. You got to listen. 
You've got to be willing to listen. Let me give you a few examples. Number one, you've got to listen to the gospel if you want to be saved. That's what Paul says in Romans. Romans 10, you can look it up later. He says, faith comes from hearing. In hearing the word of Christ, you've got to hear it, which means you've got to be quiet long enough to listen. And it's a hard message to listen to. A lot of people don't want to listen to the message of the gospel because it's a message about a uniquely holy God. It's a message that confronts us in our sinfulness and our foolishness and our stubbornness. And it's a message where God says to his people, I have provided one way by which you might be saved. You don't get to pick it. You don't get a vote. But I've provided a way graciously, kindly, mercifully. I've provided a way, one way. Not two, not ten, not a hundred, not an infinite number. One way by which you might be saved. It's a message that says you have to die to yourself. You have to repent. You have to confess your sin and agree with God about your sin. And you have to follow Jesus. There's a lot of stuff in that message that people don't want to hear. They're happy to hear about pray a prayer and go to heaven. Sign me up. I'm in. We start talking about who God is and who we are as sinners and the exclusivity of the gospel through Jesus and the call to repentance and to die to yourself, to give up everything to follow Jesus. Not a lot of people want to hear that, but you've got to listen to the gospel to be saved. Secondly, you've got to listen to sound teaching if you want to be a disciple. Paul warned Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, there will come a day where people will not listen to sound teaching. They will not listen to sound teaching. When you read that verse and you think about that verse, you say, man, I know some people like that. They refuse to go to church. They, they won't listen to anybody it's also true, not just of people who don't go to church, it's also true of people who go to church, who refuse to listen to sound teaching, who hear a pastor or a preacher or a Sunday school teacher say something that goes against what great-grandma always told them, and they say, well, that can't be true. There's no way that's true. I, look, I teach Sunday school. You can't see it so much in here because the lights are kind of bright, but I teach Sunday school. And every now and then I say something in Sunday school and somebody looks at me with eyes that are saying, you got to be wrong about that. I don't think that's right. I may be wrong. It's entirely possible that I'm wrong. You should search the scriptures and find out, but you shouldn't just assume that because I disagree with granny that it's automatically wrong. That's the sign of somebody who won't listen to sound teaching. You've got to listen to the gospel to be saved. You've got to listen to sound teaching to be a disciple. Thirdly, you've got to listen to godly counsel if you want to be wise. I know you think of Proverbs as this sort of pithy book of cutesy statements that you can pull out and put on a coffee cup or a magnet or something like that, but if you really read Proverbs carefully over and over and over and over and over again from the beginning of the book all the way to the end of the book, Proverbs says, listen, 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 listen. And sometimes we just want to get through the listen part to what it's actually saying, but you need to hear the listen part. Quit talking and listen. Listen, my son. Listen, my son. It says it over and over and over again. You've got to listen to godly counsel if you want to be a wise person. One last thought. We should look to the son of Rehoboam, Jesus, the Messiah, and obviously I don't mean the immediate son, but I mean the descendant, Jesus the Messiah. If you turn to Matthew chapter 1, opening chapter of the New Testament, it's the most exciting way to begin a book possible. It's a long list of names. 
and a lot of them you've heard of and a lot of them you haven't heard of. The genealogy begins in verse 2 with Abraham and it ends in verse 16 all the way down at the bottom with Jesus called the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. And if you look about right in the middle of it, verse 7, you'll read about Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. There's Rehoboam right there in the middle of it. And you think to yourself, what in the world is a foolish, stubborn, refusing to listen, braggart about his pinky and scorpion's big shot, know-it-all guy like Rehoboam? What in the world is he doing right here in the middle of Jesus's family tree. And guess what? He's not the only scoundrel in the family tree. It's pretty much one generation right out of the, after the next of knucklehead, murderer, idolater, scoundrel, pinky, scorpion, all the rest of it. It's just an absolutely, if you got on ancestry.com and they told you this was your family tree, you'd cancel your account. You'd say, I don't, I don't need to know anything else. I wish I didn't know that. Unsee it, just forget all of that stuff. I mean, it's embarrassing some of the people in here. That's what Jesus came to do, is to save people like this, people like us, people that you look at and say, well, just foolish people, it's just sinful, stubborn people. It's just people that really don't have that much to offer. It's people who do stupid things like walking around bragging about their pinkies and scorpions. I mean, can you believe these people? That's us. We're those people. We're those foolish, stubborn, sinful, wicked people. We're the same people who don't have much of a heart left to ourselves, in fact, any heart left to ourselves to seek the Lord or to listen to his word. That's us. But Jesus came to save people like that, people like Rehoboam, people like Rahab, people like Jacob, the liar, people like David, the adulterer, People like Uzziah, he's a pretty good king. But he bowed up to the Lord face to face one time and came away scarred for it. We'll talk about that later in this series. All these kings, just a rotten bunch of people. Those are the people Jesus came to die for, people that he came to save. Rehoboam is right in the middle of that list. And you read these stories of these kings each and every week, and you can't just stop with these kings but you've always got to finish the story. You've always got to move further down the family tree to say, bad king, bad king, bad king, decent king, but still bad. Okay king some of the times, but still bad. Bad, 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 bad. And finally get down to Jesus and you say, that's the king. That's the true king. He's the one that we need. He's the one that never broke God's law. He always sought the Lord. And then at the end of his life, he died for fools and scoundrels, for wicked people, that they could be brought into God's kingdom people like you and me and Rehoboam. So that's Rehoboam, first king of Judah. Next week, we're going to talk about his northern counterpart, Jeroboam. And the names are confusing. I hope I didn't get them mixed up tonight. I bet at some point I said the wrong name. But that's Rehoboam. Next week, uh, we'll talk about Jeroboam.